Okay. Have you ever had what you were reading in your Bible really mean a lot to you? Or what your friends reading in her Bible mean a lot to you? Like people call me and preach to me. And so tonight, this is written because of that, because of something that just really, it just really stood out to me. It kind of gave me hope for the end. It's nice to have hope for the end. And it's nice to just have really a plan and, and take all your options. The one tonight that we're going to talk about the option is the option of repentance. And I know, I know you, don't, just don't put this and say this is another lesson. It was good, but I don't do it. Take this one seriously. Out of everything you can take seriously, take this one seriously. Because it's free. <laughs> Number one, it would be stupid to be given an option that will literally make all the difference. Like all the difference, both in this age and the age to come. And you don't take the free option. So I want to start out by telling you about the concept and how important it is. And it's just odd in Scripture. Like, I don't like what it's reading. And that's why I want to ask, can we do something different? So the first thing I want to say is in Scripture, there appears this thing called the window of time. Like, there's windows of time in your life. It can mean windows of opportunity, windows of time, where there's a certain sectioned off time. I want you to think about this in terms of way back in Genesis 15, 16. It says the sins, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That's an odd concept. Sam's sins have not reached their full measure. That sounds a little bit like judgment, doesn't it? Well, when you think about the Amorite, it's like... There was a stall in there because they had not reached its measure. So there, there's a window of time. Matthew 23, 32 through 35, you'll hear Jesus discussing the same thing. I would say, oh, well, that's just an unusual phrasing in the Hebrew. But here it says, the measure of your fathers. Like they sin to a certain point, fill up the rest. So again, you're hearing that concept. Like Jesus took Genesis and expounded on it further. Like he didn't just leave it alone. And then I found one that I have never found before. I, I've always collected these windows of time. And it really excites me when I find a new piece for the collection. And not only was it a new piece for the collection, it comes out of an end time book. Daniel. Oh, that stirs me when I think about Daniel. But Daniel 8, 23 it tells us what we're talking about here. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, then a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. So it talks about in a latter time of the kingdom, when the transgressors have come to the full. So there's a cup when it becomes full. When the transgressors, when the, the sin is in its full measure, when things are topped out, and that's when the guy with a fierce countenance and understanding and dark sentences will stand up. Now, mark that stand up. It's an interesting phrase that we're going to find later in Revelation. But Acts 17.30 is the one that I like to think about, that there's a window in Acts. And Paul preaches about it. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Like there was a time of earth where there was ignorance. There wasn't global 
accessibility. There wasn't mass evangelism going on. There was a time of ignorance that God overlooked it. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that's our option. Like the opposite of being in a time of ignorance is to have everyone repent. Let me say that again. The opposite of being in a time of ignorance is having everybody everywhere repent. So this would be like neglecting your option or opting out on your option in your window of time. So you have a certain window of time that I'd say repent. Now that repentance is your answer. And this is the, the verse. And it comes along in the concept uh, or it, it it flows along, and it, it belongs with that concept of the difference between repent or perish. And it's out of Revelation 9. And you find out that this uh, happening comes on the earth, and I want you to notice a few things. In verse 3, it talks about locusts come from the smoke that descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. So these locusts come, and they have the power to sting. But they were told not to harm the grass, good day to be grass, or the plants, or the trees, but only the people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, we think of the mark of the beast on the foreheads, but they cannot harm anyone that is sealed of God. So these locusts are going to come over the earth, these stinging machines, whatever they are, maybe they're drones. Who knows what the, the guy was seeing that he described. They were told you cannot harm the plant life and you cannot harm those that are sealed by God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with the pain of the pain of a scorpion sting. And in those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And you see a lot of that, you know, this culture of death. And so these people are in these days are being stung and they just, they think this is so bad, this repetitive sting that I just want to die from it. And so in verse 10, it says they had tails that stung like scorpions and for five months, thank goodness there's bookends on this. And if you're a person that studies numbers in the Bible, five months is a very odd number. This is not your usual number of time. You know, you get 40 days, anything in sevens, all these different 10 days, but never five months. They had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. Wow. So who's the king of the, the locusts who are stinging like scorpions? Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. His name in the Greek is Apollyon, the destroyer. And this is where that host comes after. Verse 12 is unusual, especially in the way that it's, it's worded. It says this is the first terror is past. The first terror is past. In other translations, the first woe is past, but there are two more coming. Wow, what a setup here. 
So the sixth trumpet brings the second terror, and we'll skip to verse 15. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one-third of the people of the earth. I heard the size of their army, and it was 200 million mounted troops. There's only one country that has that population to spare for an army, or so they say. Verse 18, so one-third of all these people were killed by these three plagues. It describes the plagues. Verse 20, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continue to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or of their witchcraft, or of their sexual immorality, or their thefts. And that's chapter 9 in Revelation. So again, we're looking at options that we're being given. We're given an option. Like, that's what gives you hope. I don't know if you caught that, but that's the hope. Like, there's two things that give you hope in this chapter. One is that you're sealed. And then the second one is something that for some reason people are opting out of. Now, I want you to look at the other repent or perish. Jesus picked up that theme in Luke 13, 1 through 5. And he talked about on that occasion, there were a lot of people that were talking to him. And they said, did you hear the latest news report? The Galileans whom Pilate had mixed their blood with the sacrifices. Like Pilate, he was a lot more crazy than you think. That's why he said, I have the authority to kill you. And uh, Jesus says, you don't have any authority to kill me. And there was a, a scuffle here. But that's because Pilate was bloody. Like we, don't, we think of him as, as, as not a, a bloodthirsty man, but it says he had mixed these people's blood with his sacrifices. And Jesus responded and said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans just because they suffered this fight? Well, that bothers you. So is it random? What does this mean? He answers us, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you're going you're gonna to perish likewise, just like them. Or do you think that the 18 on whom the Tower of Sloan fell and killed were worse offenders than all the people who live in Jerusalem? I don't know. Jerusalem's as bad as they were. So what's the answer? Random chance? No. He says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So you're seeing the opposing force of being, you perish if you don't repent. If you repent, it keeps you from perishing. It's not that you're better than the other ones. It's just you're repenting. You're getting yourself in right relationship with God. Jerusalem's bad. The people who died are bad. We're bad. But one piece or one group is advised. You either perish or repent. Destroyed by the destroyer. And that's what it was talking about, the destroyer in Revelation. And, and uh, the book of John tells you who that destroyer is. Look at Jeremiah 5.2, and that reminds you of that other lesson that I did. But in Jeremiah 5.2 it says, but they refuse to take correction. They refuse to take correction. If a person refuses to take correction, it's a problem. Are you easy to correct? refuses to take correction. They've made their faces harder than a rock. 
Uh-oh, we're looking at faces again. There's that countenance. But look at the end of it. They refuse to take correction. They made their face hard, for they have refused to repent. That's Jeremiah 5.2. A refusal to repent. Now let's talk about this offer or this option that God gives to repent. He didn't have to. He could have just said, you sin, you deserve to die. I mean, that's how we think about people. You did it. You paid for it. So this option is something that he gave us. But for some reason, if we say repent, we've got to ask ourselves, is repentance the ideal of, if I tell you, you need to repent, is that something that doesn't sit well with you? You're like, repent, is that an ugly name or a beautiful name, a beautiful thing? Because, you know, we talk about it. If you really want to get rid of it, call it by the ugly name. If you really want to keep it, call it something beautiful. So in the mornings, do you just say to yourself, oh, I love to repent. Lord, thank you. I'm going to spend some time repenting. I'm just going to repent. And that'll help put me in a place I don't get destroyed. Like a tower won't fall on my head today. <laughs> like someone won't uh, use me as their murder, you know, where they choose me as their target. Like those are random. So it's telling you if you repent, it takes you out of randomness. That you perish if you don't repent. So if you choose to say, oh, okay, it's something beautiful, then you incorporate it in in the morning and you just say, Lord, I just really love to repent. So you got to ask yourself, how good are, are you at using your repenter? Does your repenter like to repent? Or do you only do it when, oh, that was a terrible lesson. My gosh, when I heard that, I did some repenting that night. That's been, um, when, when did she teach that? Oh, a year and a half ago. <laughs> but it's looking like that that repentance gets you out of the pathway of the destroyer. Like that's why it says, lead me away from destruction. Lead me away from wickedness, from evil. It actually leads you away from that. So it's a, it's a beautiful thing that happens. Now what's odd is that Jesus not only talks to us, and I'm not wanting this to frustrate you, I'm just wanting you to think about it. But he doesn't just talk to you about it as an individual. That He talked about cities repenting. When you look at it, it, he talks about, in Matthew and Luke's gospel, he talks about a message of woe. I never have liked Jesus having to say woe to you. And he says, woe to these unrepentant cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. And when you think about it, he goes, if anybody else had had these miracles, they would have repented. But these cities did not repent. How does a whole city repent? Like when they ask our city, hey, why don't you come down and pray and fast? It might be good to be a part of it. To be a part of, the, uh, of that aspect. But it's, it's like taking what God gives and not doing anything with it. Because I want you to think Bethsaida is where Philip, Andrew, and Peter came from. So you could say, you could have thought he would have said, blessed are you, Bethsaida, because you gave us Philip and Andrew and Peter. But it doesn't read that way. And Jesus healed a blind man from there. Capernaum? 
Oh, Capernaum is mentioned so many times in the gospel, and it was the target or the site where many of Jesus' miracles and and healings took place. It was the center of his public ministry, and yet it's considered woe. City, repent, whole city. And when you study all the cities that you're seeing named in the Bible, they're still there, but not these three. I mean, you'll drive and go, oh, there went Nain. That's where Jesus raised someone from the dead. Or you just start looking at all the different cities of Bethlehem, Jerusalem, of course, those you know. But Jaffa, all those cities are still in Israel, but not these three. So we tend to think if God does miracles in our city, that makes us blessed by God. Well, we're a revival center. and We're having miracles. All these miracles took place. Jesus Jesus spent so much time here, so that means that there's miracles. That means that God has chosen us. It might be that he's picking us because there's a hardness there, and he's trying to get us to repent. So I was going to let you know that miracles mean repentance, and that's not Old Testament. That's not me saying, oh, this is an Old Testament ideal where Elijah did it. This is where Jesus did it, and he said it should have brought repentance. So we have this idea of the souped up miracle, all this, all this great stuff is happening, when in truth, it still relies on us. The miracles is what Jesus is doing. That's the gifts he's given us. It's no indication that we're doing it right. And if there's an outbreak of them, like in Capernaum, I would have never known that that city could be cursed, that it, it could fall under this for not repenting, that it would have the woes against it. So I'm telling you that you can't hide behind even such a thing as a move of God. You've got to repent. Jesus said they didn't repent. And then you look in Acts 2, verse 38, and this is the thing that shocks me. People that I respect will tell you when you get saved, you don't have to repent. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to tell you the names of who these people are because it would bother you that badly. And I think how bizarre it is that in the time we need to be repenting, such a doctrine would even raise its head among believers, among people that believe in healings. And I would say repentance is not a doctrine that we need to throw out or with salvation. But it says in verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every last one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So you see the repent and be saved concept together. You know, like repent, follow the Lord in baptism, and this will give you the remission of sins. So I have to call it heresy when people are trying to be saved without repentance. Of all the things you could preach right now, why on earth would you even think about preaching no repentance? Guess where that sermon came from? The bottomless pit wrote that sermon. It is not the message of the hour. It's not what the Spirit of the Lord is saying, nor is it what it's saying in our window. We're in this unique window of time. You've been chosen to live during this time that you're living in. Combine it with the message of repentance. You're combining miracles with repentance. You're combining the end times and what we need to be doing with repentance. But some people emotionally just can't be told to repent. 
I mean, if they hear a sermon on repentance, they get really nervous. If you get nervous, there might be a problem. If you're restless and squirming in your seat, the repentance shouldn't sit crossways with you because that means you haven't done it cleanly. You know, I have to admire Steph. To me, this is one of the signs that she is so humble because she does not mind repenting. If I name a sin of hers, in case she hadn't repented, she'll go ahead and repent again. She'll just repent and repent and repent and repent. She says you can't repent too much. And I, I really like that concept of saying, okay, let's just repent. Let's not make this hard. Like, she doesn't make it hard on me to tell her I don't like that behavior on you. And she goes, okay, I'll repent. How easy is that? Okay. And after a while, I'm like, what could there be left to repent of? I mean, you're repenting your toenails up, you know. I mean, it's repentant. And so that's where I would say I want you to pattern after. I want you to go for that. Don't make repentance hard. Don't make the person who tells you to repent feel like they have to work up their courage to say those words to you. People shouldn't be having to say it to you. You should just knee-jerk react. I want to repent. I just want to repent. Like, already come to the place, already repented. And it's kind of like where people have truth that just makes them mad. You know, I had someone the other day where the Lord just told on them. I wasn't expecting him to tell on them. I was just praying for them in deep crying out intercession. And the Lord just told me what they had just done. I was so shocked I jumped. And then I went and asked him about it. What's the last day I see them? Like, first they told me, no, that wasn't true. Their face turned red and, you know, they just didn't have that will to hold that face where they couldn't, they couldn't just let it burst out. But... It's this thing here of being completely honest with yourself. Like God doing that is extra mercy on you. And in this particular case, I was kind of shocked of, of how much it was opening them up to a, a spirit of death. It was opening them up to something that I was actually seeing on them. Like I couldn't figure out why am I seeing this? Like it's not like you've done something that half the world hadn't done, I was like, why is it causing this kind of demonic manifestation in your life? Like, there's some stuff happening to you that's not even making sense to me. And so that's where I would tell you, go into that repentance. You know, I think of people, if I was to tell you a story here, you know, of people who have things going wrong with their life. Like, they just have a lot of things going wrong for them. Let's say kind of like something blew their house down. If I told them, repent, because you didn't build your house on the sand, what would they think about me? Yeah. So it's best to tell them ahead of time. I don't think it's ever good once they've been wiped out at a funeral to, you know, to do, to do that. But I'll see people try to get people to repent at that point, but they're unwilling to tell them during their window of time when they have an opportunity to do something about it. And that's where I would tell you, use your opportunity with a person before they have death come on them. Be the first one in. Be the person that tells them while there's still hope for them. Use their window. Don't use it to club them. Don't use it to, after it's too late, to go say, I know why it happened. You ought to be slapped 
if you know why it happened and you said nothing. But what you're bracing yourself for is most people will get really mad at you if you tell them to repent. Like for some reason, that will make them really hate your guts. But you've got to do it because on the other side of it, it's terrible for them. Let me go a little bit deeper. Let's, let's take and crawl a little bit deeper. How about if you're that person who hasn't had things working for you? Can you take the message of repentance well? Like saying, it's not working for me, and I don't know why it's not working for me. Something's not working for me. So I'm going to just start repenting. And if I don't just start repenting, I'm going to go ask someone who has a lot of ability to see what's happening in my life, tell me what I could do. What can I do? Like, give me a specific thing I can repent of. I don't want to be wiped out. I don't want to perish. I don't, I don't want to be stung by hornets. I don't want these kind of things coming up on me. So you can find yourself in this position, and the world has managed to get themselves in this, this weird place. Like even what I'd call the Bible Belt people, even the people on, on Facebook who go to church every day, it's their self-destructive behaviors killing them. There's not a, please let me show you a better way or please show me a better way. But it's, would you be offended? Some people hate this type of message with a hatred beyond hatred simply because they can't make any kind of peace with truth. It doesn't set well in them. I'm saying repentance got a dirty name. And I want you to think, who gave it the dirty name? The one who wants you to follow them. Down, down, down. <laughs> Johnny Cash, down <laughs> to the bottomless. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to go to a pit that has no bottom to it. But it gave repentance a dirty name. And that's what we're doing tonight is cleaning up the name in your mind, in your heart. Because let me ask you. Can we take Revelation and pull it off? That we do what we have to do to get some of this stuff to just not wreck our lives? Is there anything, is Revelation written as a warning like most prophecy where you can repent and it change it? I'm asking. Like, does it have to go down that bad? Could we do something about it? Like, I know every warning scripture I know in the Bible was written so we could do something about it. Revelation 9, what I told you I liked about it, it's what got me excited to just go ahead and say, I'm not going to leave this group without saying this very clearly, is you've got a window in Revelation 9. There's time. It says that those who are sealed won't have this happen to them. And even if you're not sealed, it still tells you something. I want you to look at it. It's not too late for repentance. The mercy window is still open. Look at the last part of that verse. It says, so the hornets come, the one-third of the people on earth were killed with these plagues, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent. Like, to me, that's so much hope. Like the option was still open to them. It didn't say they couldn't. It didn't. It said they wouldn't. So I'm telling you, option, option, 
don't opt to not take your option. <laughs> option. I mean, any of you who play card games, you're like, use your get out of jail free card. Now's the time. You know, hit the buzzer, do something. Because it says there was still time to repent and they didn't take their ability to repent. How stupid is that? Like these people that I'm helping, we're not talking about a time of ignorance. We're talking about the fact that they have the option. So they refuse to repent of their evil day, deeds and turn to God. They continue to worship demons. Worshiping demons. Why? Why would you worship them? And so they worship idols that neither can see nor hear nor walk. Sounds like uh, Neil Diamond singing. They worship something that can't see, it can't hear, and it can't walk. It can't do these things. And again, in verse 21, it says the same words. And they did not repent of their murders, of their witchcraft, of their sexual immorality, and of their thefts. Maybe you're making up a lie and you say to yourself, well, I keep doing it. Well, keep repenting. Keep repenting. Repent. Talk to the Lord about it. Repent, repent, repent. Don't get hard in your heart like Jeremiah said and don't repent. Repent. Repent a little more. Repent's good. Repent. Repent. But because you move into something here in Revelation 9 that you're into a place that it's not too late for repentance but they won't repent. Look at this. They won't consider God. They won't rely on Him. They won't take him into account. Or maybe they're mad at him. They will take any option the world gives them, but this one. Like they'll try anything they can possibly think of to try, but not this option. Just like Jesus offers it, and people for the most part will not receive it, it bothers me that in Revelation, that repentance is still on the table, and people still won't do it you would think when it got that intense people would repent like i'll i may have more stubbornness than you can imagine but there's a certain point with my arm bent behind my back and it's cocked that there's a point that i will tell you you're my uncle I will tell you what you want to hear at a certain point. I'll tell you, I'll scream mercy, even though there's something in me that does not want to do it. Why does it not do that? Why will people not repent? The devil's whipping them. They're still worshiping his demons, and they won't repent. So our part is to make sure that they don't miss heaven because they're ignorant, but because they choose not to go there. And that's what Revelation's telling you. You don't want someone to just not know. Just not know they can repent. Just not know about Jesus. Just not know. That's what the Bible's mandating for you in the harvest. It's not mandating that everyone makes it because it doesn't look too good on that. Like it looks bleak. But what he's mandating is that they at least know so they can choose not to go with God. Everybody deserves that chance. I don't like watching, watching them not. But I don't want to have that thing where they never knew. This is mercy for the gospel to reach the ends of the earth. He wants you to know to repent. 
He made it very clear. He wrote you a prophecy that is like reading the newspaper so that you would know that the bottom line, that at the very end it says, repent, repent. And if you think about it, under the concept of is repentance a, a, a nice word, I want you to think about like Jonah. And I'll never forget where Call, one of our crossliners, came up with this. He said that repentance was not even put on the table with Nineveh. It was not even offered to him. Read it. Jonah 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. A second time it said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'll tell you. These are the words. So Jonah went up. He went to Nineveh. He did what the Lord said. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city. It took him three days to walk across it. And as he began to go through the city, he said, 40 more days, Nineveh will be destroyed. 40 more days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Do you hear repent in there? Do you realize that's what makes repentance the most beautiful word you've ever heard in your life? When you're not given the option to repent. That's when it becomes astoundingly beautiful to you. When you're hearing 40 days... And you're destroyed, 40 days, 40 days. And you hear this guy going through the city, and he doesn't give you the option at all. It's not on the table. God didn't say it. These are God's words. He did not tell them they could repent. How about if Revelation was just written, and it was real terrible, but he didn't give us anything about repentance in it? It's how Jonah got it. It's how Nineveh got it from Jonah. No option. There wasn't anything said they could repent. Maybe God just wanted to kill them. That's an Old Testament concept of the Ninevites were terrible people. Let's just kill them. You know, some people deserve killing. I mean, you're looking at that concept that that's how it could have been, but that's not what ended up happening. I want you to see something. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth, that the king got off of his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with something besides his kingly robe, and he put on sackcloth, and he sat in the dust. And he issued a proclamation. This ungodly, evil king came up with this, not Jonah. And he says, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything. They are not to eat or drink water, but every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and the people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. And look at how repentance comes up. Verse 9, who knows? Who knows? Who knows, God might turn and relent from his burning anger and we will not perish. And that is the exact thing that I'm telling you. This is when repentance becomes so wonderful. That's when you say, God, thank you that the window has not shut. Thank you that it's not shut on my fingers. Thank you that it, the time didn't close. Because you see in those parables, and the bridegroom got up and he shut the door in the face of the five virgins. The door was shut. 
There's times of the shutting of the door that it's over with. There's no more time. It's over. And you see this happen. And this is what Nineveh was contending in the spirit with. Contending in the realm. Has the time passed for us to be forgiven? We've attacked the Israelites. We've done harm to their country, to the Judah and Israel and all these different things. You, you see that these were bitter enemies. And that they're wondering, have we crossed too far? Have we gone too much? And you may be wondering the same thing. But they ask the question of maybe, who knows, maybe this would be possible. In the book of Jonah, when repentance wasn't offered, it is masterful to think that God could possibly give us this 40-day warning and it could be changed. Amen. And that's the book of Revelation. People are offended by it, but they're not opting for it. Jonah was the one that didn't do what he was supposed to. Jonah ran the opposite way, but when he came back and he preached and he told people destruction awaits you. He didn't offer the repentance, but they believed what he said. They believed they were going to fall, and they were able to change the prophecy. Because you think, well, the words of God can't change. He said in 40 days they would. That didn't say unless. It wasn't a conditional. It just said it was going to happen. They changed it. Nineveh will fall. It doesn't say Nineveh will fall if they don't repent. It just says Nineveh will fall. Try something. So I'm saying that many times you'll see in Scripture that Jesus says, if you don't repent, one of you cities, Capernaum, let's just say, then Sodom and Gomorrah are going to condemn you. Another city is going to stand up and they're going to condemn you because if the miracles had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Nineveh will stand up. And it will condemn us because it will say if the preaching had been done in Nineveh, we would have easily been evangelists. We would have easily done what we were asked. But we never had the preaching you had. We never knew these things. It's like at your judgment, there's going to be witnesses there to say, if we had had that, it, it's, the, it's the ignorance that is argued. It's the times of ignorance of saying, you had a chance to share Christ with me, but you never did. How many testimonies have you heard where, where someone comes to Christ and they say, I had all these friends that were Christians and not one of them ever told me. Not one of them ever shared this with me. Not one time did they ever mention this to me. And that's what stands up to witness against us is there's people that are begging to hear it from you. And so they didn't take this option. They didn't take the heart. And so Nineveh will be that one that stands up and says, we weren't even given the option to repent. What were y'all thinking to claim that you were believers and refuse to repent? What were you thinking to, to, to buy into something of not repenting? Why were you calling repentance an ugly word when your God was, was even offering it to you on a silver platter and you don't take it? Like, when we say that people deserve to go to hell, the, the context around it is the fact of 
We're being offered a free gift. Like Jesus is completely something that he did for us, what we could not do for ourselves. And so in that sense of the word, when we think of all we offered God was our sin, our hardness, and all he offered us was his love and given what he loved the most and Jesus as a sacrifice in our place, then yes, we deserve it. Like we deserve punishment because we're fully knowing what we're doing and rejecting it. We're not repenting. Like it, it's, how, it's how this comes about. So for as believers, for us not to take this option makes no sense. What does repentance mean? You think of Ahab. He was a lousy person. <laughs> but he repented and it actually moved God. You know, Elisha comes to him and he said, Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, and you'll say to him, The Lord said, Have you killed someone and taken possession of his land? And then you'll say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick up your blood? And, and he starts going down the list of all the things that are going to happen. And then Ahab said to Elijah, This is how tough he was, his words, Have you found me, O my enemy? That didn't sound good. And he says to him, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'm going to bring disaster upon you and I will utterly burn you up. I will cut off every part of your descendants. And he goes right down the list what he's going to do with Jezebel and that. Then the next verses give you this. There was no one so evil that he sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Like sold himself. But look at what happens. Verse 27, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He fasted. He lay in the sackcloth. He just had his head down. Dejected. He was just, he was hurt. He just, he was sorry. It's, it's so odd if you ask me what does repentance look like I just described. He put on worse clothes. He just put his head down. And it says the word of the Lord then came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But it will happen in his days of his son. Because his son wouldn't be good. And does not the goodness of God still lead men to repentance? Even the vilest of men. I'm saying this is what repentance looks like. I don't want to give you a definition of what people say repentance is. I want to show you what repentance does. I'm giving you verses of how repentance looks. Luke 18, 13. When you look at this, and you think about your worst sin. Have you ever told God you were sorry for your worst sin? You know what your worst sin is. It's the one you're thinking about right now. <laughs> it's what makes you think you can't sell out to God. And Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and one was the most horrible thing on earth he could be. I mean, Jesus picked the, the most atrocious, ungodly, terrible person that has ever walked on the face of the earth. A tax collector. And so the Pharisee and the tax collector, I think they were property tax collectors. IRS, 
Oh, they're all of them. They, it, even gas tax. We're, we're just going to say they're all the tax collectors of the world. And these two men went to the temple. They both went to church. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I'm glad I'm not. And he cuts his eyes over like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have. I'm a tither and I fast. I am spiritual. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what repentance looks like. You've got to beat your chest a little. You do. Every one of them have motion to it. Every one of repentance has something. Ahab, he changed clothes. A lot of times he sat out in the dirt. They were dejected. This guy, he beats his chest. He, he beats himself and he says, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says these words, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified by God. What a word, justified justified nothing changed he was still collecting taxes he was still a tax collector you look at that and he 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 won the heart of god with his heart because if you're cutting your eyes looking at someone else and saying look at all these lists of sins i'm not doing and look at that tax collector i'm glad i'm not like him that smugness will not enter the kingdom of heaven and so at this point, this man went home justified because he understood he needed mercy and he repented and he beat his chest. I would say it doesn't hurt you to do some things like this, like some serious stuff. Like I'm shocked that God looked over and here Ahab is such a haughty man. And he goes, Elijah, look at him. He's humbled himself. The next picture of, of what it looks like to repent is there were two people with Jesus in his death. And they represent the two types of people. And in each one of these, I'm seeing the, the two types. You're seeing it in the thief on the cross. You're seeing it in this, in this parable here of, um, of what Jesus tells of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Catch this moment. Now there was an inscription written above Jesus, the cross, and it said, this is the king of the Jews. You know, Pilate didn't let him say, he says he is, but he is. And so one of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And if I hear the voice of revelation, what I hear when I put my hands up to my ears, I hear people mocking I hear the, the, the abuse. I hear the revilers. I hear the rebellious. I hear them say they don't want God as God over them. I hear them say they don't want the Son. They don't want Jesus. You, you Put your ears up. You can hear the mocking. Like it's so strong that even in the next few chapters of Revelation, you'll read that there was a beast. In, and I think, you know, how many horns did he have or how many whatever eyes? or I don't remember what he did, but he had some kind of appendages sticking out. And on every one of them was a mocking, blasphemous name of God. 
That's what the beast looks like. Like everything about him mocks God. Everything about him just will not submit to his authority, will not respect him, will not at all humble their heart. That's what it looks like in Revelation. And if you put your ears up, it's these two types and they were hanging on the cross. And one was doing that. And so notice what this guy does. And it says he was hurling abuse at him. He did not care that Jesus was dying. And he says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. And some people could say, well, that's a rational argument. Like we've seen him do miracles. Why not? Why not? Like I'm offering him a good deal. Like I'm telling him, save yourself first and then me. So you could even reason, you could even throw out ideas, you could even tell God, this is how you should have saved the earth. This is how you should have uh, have reached my heart. And that's called hurling abuse. But the other guy answered, and he rebuked him, and says, do you not even fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And he goes, don't you get it? We're suffering because we deserve to. We, we're suffering justly. Our, our trials were fair. We were thieves. So we're receiving what we justly deserve for our deeds. And he weighed it out and he said, but this man hadn't done anything wrong. And you have people that think that they're, they're mighty enough to stand before God and advise him. And that's what that one was doing. He didn't take his heart down a notch. And then he says these sentence. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledged his place. He could end there and Jesus not say anything and we not know. At least it was a try, you know, like Nineveh. Let's, let's at least try it. But for these precious words, I'm glad someone collected these words and wrote them down for me because I could just not know for sure. And Jesus said to him, in the midst of his pain, in the midst of all he was going through, of dying for the whole world, he saves the one, the individual. A world, a world that had passed, a world that was the future, a world that was present, Everyone at the foot of the cross, all the people, all the revilers. And Jesus says to the one, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. He made it. Repentance. At the last seconds, the non-repenter doesn't learn. It doesn't seem like the other guy on the cross learned. It doesn't seem like the, the Pharisee learned. It doesn't seem like the people in the book of Revelation learned. The non-repenter doesn't learn from the good repenter. (laughs) Hey, would you let me in there too? No repentance. Just why why wouldn't he just say that? Okay, I want to do what he does. Like, okay, forgive me. I I deserve what I'm getting. When he sees the other guy get it, he neglects his option. He opts out on the option. And it makes no real rational sense why people would reject repentance. And God in his mercy is so strong that God does legal loopholes. If you've ever been in the justice system, you want a lawyer that knows how to get legal loopholes for your mercy. 
And he does this amazing legal loophole that I don't hear many people do, and I've never, I don't think I've heard one of you do it except the person that stays with me in step the closest. I think I might have heard you do it. But the legal loophole is this. God's trying to get your will to repent. He's trying to get your will to repent. He's got to have it free choice. He can't just, he can't erase your sins without your heart asking for it. So he creates a legal loophole. He said, if you won't do it, maybe you'll do it for. Now, if that's not a loophole, that's where Jesus said, your sins are forgiven them. Talk about a bonus. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. God so wants you to have mercy that, that you can hope that someone's asking that your sins be forgiven. Someone loves you that much. Someone's playing the intercessory role standing between you and destruction. John 20, 23 is your legal loophole. Who's ever sins you forgive, they're forgiven them. Who's ever sins you retain, they'll be retained. Are you using your loophole? I have people sin against me. And I can't tell you how many times I'll ask God, don't let that stand in judgment. I'm not going to witness against them. I'm asking that the blood stand over it. I use my legal loophole. Like There's some people and I'm like clearly guilty. Clearly in need of repentance. Or bring their heart to the place of repenting. I forgive them. It's a step beyond that thing of if you've been forgiven to forgive and if you fail to forgive, you block it for yourselves. You know, because there's some verses that says, my father won't forgive you if you won't forgive others. But that judgment thing, why don't we take, if, if we take some verses that we can do what Jesus did, why not forgive sins? Why not? Yeah. Why not take that? Why not take John 20, 23? People goes, well, it's only... People say, well, it's only in there once. I say, thank goodness it's in there. Jonah didn't have it in there. Let, let's take something that's there. So I can literally say, I hear a guy use God's name in vain. Lord, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Lord, let me have a chance to tell him. He doesn't need to revile your name. It's not a good time. There's too much destruction all around him. Someone cheats God. Forgive them, God. They don't know they're doing that. They're robbing you. They, they don't know. Look, oh my gosh, that's a very immature way to do it. Okay, God, tonight I'm asking you, let that sin be forgiven. Don't let that be held on their account. God gave us legal loopholes of mercy. This is so much mercy. I don't have words to say that I can, on your behalf, ask God, please forgive you. So different than our hearts. The great psalm of Psalm 51. Lord, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Renew to me the joy of my salvation. Lord, I've, get my excitement back again. Lord, get me in right. Start, Lord, we're praying for this repentance. And so as I close the Bible study, as the window closes, I'm going to say something from, 
is there a point in time that mercy runs out? You know, you read the verse, and your mercy endureth forever. Your mercy endureth forever. Your mercy endureth forever. But yet the window closes, the door shuts. Departing from me, I never knew you. You weren't prepared. You didn't do the talents. You didn't do the sheep and the goats. And you know, I think of those four parables that are together, the, the bad slave and the good slave, and one guy tries to play his odds and be as bad as he can right up until the master comes back. So you have those parables about the end, and you say, but, but the mercy seemed to run out, but yet your Bible says the mercy doesn't run out. Like, like how do you make that work? Like, if the mercy lasts forever, then... And Adrian, one of our crossliners, said something that I shall never forget. And he said that God spoke to him and said, mercy never runs out. Time does. And theology forever made sense. The Bible does not contradict itself. When you understand the mercy will never run out for your life, but time does run out. And with that, the door shuts. Amen.